0: one thing you'll see again quite often with triathletes when they're trying to work on that high elbow catch is they think they're doing it but what they're actually doing is just flexing at the wrist so they're just purely relying on the hand to generate propulsion which is a you're really cheating yourself because that forearm can generate quite a bit
1: that triathlon show 123 Hey, what's up everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dave Peace, who is the national lead of sports biomechanics at the Australian Institute of Sport, and swimming biomechanics is his specialty. He is a former swimmer himself and works with a lot of swimmers, both professional and amateur. And he has done a great amount of research on swimming biomechanics. So he knows both the practical aspects and the scientific and research aspects of swimming biomechanics inside and out. He is also the author of the swimming biomechanics chapter in the book Triathlon Science. As I said before, the authors contributing to this book, Triathlon Science, are the best of the best at what they do, so I try to get all of them on the podcast, and there aren't that many more to go before I've covered that. Anyway, Dave got his uh, bachelor's and master's in exercise science at the University of Southern California and the University of Colorado, respectively. Then he moved to New Zealand to do his PhD there. And now he lives in Australia and is coming up on living abroad as long as uh, having lived in the US. Before the interview with Dave, let's thank our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They make electrolyte products for optimal performance and no more cramps. I got a great, really cool email recently from a listener who wrote in saying that he was sitting in in an accommodation container somewhere in uh, Kabul on a short mission with the UN environment team listening to that triathlon show. I have a couple of tubes with me here, not only for the known purpose, but they are great for staying in good hydrated shape when acclimatizing to the heat and climate here. I use uh, 1500, the 1500 version of Precision Hydration. and This is awesome, this is really cleverly done by this listener, because obviously hydration is super important, vital, whether it's in a sporting sense or not. And remember that as that triathlon show listener, you can get your first Product of Precision Hydration electrolytes for free on precisionhydration.com using the code that show all one word all caps. This episode is also sponsored by Ventum. The new Ventum C mechanical is Ventum making super bikes available for the masses at a price point that is affordable for anybody who is looking to buy a triathlon bike. It uses the same patented frame design as their flagship model, the Ventum 1, which uh, has no down tube and no seat stays to make it super aerodynamic, plus uh, an integrated 1.4 liter water bottle in the top tube. But with the Ventum C Mechanical, you can get all this for uh, a lot cheaper. They offer it in three options, two complete bike options and one frame set option. And uh, the complete bike with Vision Team 30 wheels, uh, and the mechanical gearing is uh, three thousand and five hundred US dollars, and for just the frame set it's two thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars. So check it out on VentumRacing.com, and if you're looking for a triathlon bike that is fast but is affordable for most triathlon budgets, then look no further than the Ventum C Mechanical. Now let's hear the interview with Dave Peace. So I'm here today with uh, Dave Pease to talk about swimming biomechanics. So Dave, how are you doing today? Great, Michael. How are you? Great as well. Uh, catching a bit of a cold, but uh, I'll let you do most of the talking to <laughs> to right. try to make the listeners not have to suffer through my uh, my my nose uh, st- uh, stuffing up on me. Uh, let's uh, let's start. Get right into the topic, and uh, mm-hmm. there are a few key overarching concepts in swimming biomechanics uh, that uh, I think that we should uh, cover first and also discuss how they relate to swimming in practice, uh, something that the listeners can understand. So uh, first, what can you tell us about the center of mass and how that's important in uh, swimming?
0: Yeah. Well, center of mass, which the easiest way to think about it is it's a single point in your body that allows you to represent the entire mass of the body in one place. So for most people, when you're just standing with your arms down at your sides, that's kind of right around your um, belly button or your navel, but that does move around a bit. So if you raise your arms up above your head, that center of mass will move up. And especially when we start looking at swimming, that works in combination with another point that we call the center of buoyancy so depending how those two points align dictates how you balance yourself in the water so the what the center of buoyancy is is essentially the center if you took all the bits of your body that were actually under the water surface so if you ride really high in the water then you don't count the bit that's out, just the bits that, that's under. You find the one point that's kind of the center of that underwater mass. And what will happen is if the um, your center of mass is closer to your feet than the center of buoyancy, then your feet are going to sink. And conversely, if your center of mass is closer to your head than the center of buoyancy, then your head's going to come down and your legs will rise higher. So that is all around maintaining your balance in the water so that's where we look at body position or you know the influence of wetsuits and things like that
1: and we'll get into that uh, in the troubleshooting part a bit later but where is Mm. uh, the center of buoyancy and the center of mass in a good swimming position with no sinking legs
0: yeah they'd be pretty much right aligned so if you had if you had a picture of a swimmer in front of you you'd have the center of mass and center of buoyancy would be just about one on top of the other so that there's no um, torque or turning action caused by the center of mass around the buoyancy.
1: And where on the body would that be, roughly?
0: Yeah, as as I was saying, if if your arms are down by your side, it's going to be right around your belly button. So you figure in swimming where you're most of the time going to probably have one arm above your head, it's going to be slightly higher than that few centimeters higher.
1: Okay. Uh, Closer to the head. Good. Uh, Next, let's uh, discuss propulsion and uh, how Mm -hmm. how that is important in biomechanics.
0: Yep. Well, propulsion is obviously, that's the force that we're looking for to move you forward through the water. So it's really in combination with drag, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, um, is really the whole key thing. That we're looking at generating to maximize your performance. So that's where a lot of the technique issues that we'll talk about are really, especially when you look at freestyle, like we use in triathlon, um, are really focused on maximizing the amount of propulsion that we generate so that we can, you know, get through the race as fast as possible.
1: And uh, you generate propulsion with uh, both your, your arm stroke and and your kick, uh, obviously. Roughly, what is the percentage in, in freestyle swimming of the two?
0: Yeah, the percentage contribution is a little bit of a perpetual debate. That's one of our big problems in swimming is it's actually really difficult to quantify directly what the um, propulsive forces are. But you're probably looking for – especially when you start looking at a triathlete population, you're probably – I would guess probably 80%, 90% of your propulsion is going to be coming from your upper body. So that's not only your hands. You know, that's obviously the big one. But you also are going to – if you, you know, use certain technique characteristics, you can actually start using more of your forearm as well and even in some instances, a little bit of your upper arm. Um, whereas with the kick, um, you can, depending on how flexible your ankles are, that's a a real big, um, criteria that we need to look at. Um, you don't tend to generate as much propulsion. Um, some people, you know, you get the, Ian Thorpe's of the world who have really large feet and really flexible ankles. So the, the feet are actually almost closer to a fin. They can generate quite a lot of force, but that's really pretty rare in a triathlon population, especially with ankle flexibility is not normally a, a huge characteristic. So we do tend to focus more on um, maximizing that amount of propulsion that we can get, whether it's just from the hands or a forearm or whatever.
1: And uh, when you measure propulsion in in studies or you simulate it in simulation work, uh, do you use uh, power like watts that triathletes would be used to in uh, from a cycling uh, sense to to quantify the propulsion?
0: Yeah, you can. Um, I think we tend to probably do it more just in pure force. Um, so it could, because the forces are actually really quite low, you're talking, you know, a like an elite swimmer, like sprinter, would probably only be generating, uh, I don't know, about 10 to 12 kilograms of force max. So we're actually not talking about huge loads here. Um, so we, we tend to kind of look at it more in that. We, do, we can look at it in power. Um, we'll do it more in that sense if we're doing more of a, a complete biomechanical analysis and we're wanting to look at um, – joint powers so what are the forces actually going through each of the individual joints in combination with the velocities um but yeah it, so it, yes it is used but it's probably not quite as common as just the simple force
1: so i guess that uh, the fact that you have you see even in elite swimmers low forces uh, uh, that then uh, we can deduce that that it's drag that is uh, Something that that you can use to distinguish yourself and become a better swimmer, because most people, it's not a lack of force that they have available to mm. them that is limiting their swim, yeah. but uh, the ability to use it and and then how much drag they have. Is that a correct interpretation?
0: Yeah, I think, and what I, I tend to kind of look at is that that's very true. But it's almost – there is a bit of a continuum there. And what you tend to see is that the higher level athletes, swimmers I should say probably, um, are generally – they've got pretty solid technique already. So the propulsive forces are are there already. So a lot of the little tweaks that they'll look at doing are more around the drag reduction. The less skilled you move down towards the bottom of the um, spectrum – You'll get people who are, are not very efficient movers in the water. So they may have really bad body position, all kinds of things, um, poor arm pull technique. So we'll actually spend more time with them on getting that proper technique to get the propulsion. And then once they've attained that, then we can start to look at, okay, how can we now play around with primarily it's going to be characteristics of body position so how they sit in the water you know what kind of um, materials or suits and things are made out of to try to get that drag force down because the bigger the difference we can have the propulsive force we want that as much greater than the drag force as possible because it's that difference that really is going to dictate how fast you're going to go in the end
1: that's that's an interesting approach i think that's often see that uh, uh people talk about trying to to get their position right first and then mm. and then working on their stroke after that but um yeah it's uh, interesting to hear that you you do it the other way and and I guess that you you see good yeah. results with it and that's why you do it.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think it, when you get really seriously bad body positions um then that's obviously got to be a a real starting point um but yeah so i as i say it's, it does end up being a little bit of a continuum
1: yeah okay and uh let's talk about momentum finally briefly as one of the key aspects yep. here
0: mm-hmm. yeah so one of the the key things in swimming is that because of the, the nature of the stroke you're if you actually track your velocity through the water and if it, in biomechanics we would normally look at what's the velocity of the center of mass so it's you can pretty much imagine that as what's the velocity of your hip. That's in general for freestyle swimming is pretty much close enough. Um, and what happens is because the stroke is quite cyclical on both with both arms, you get a lot of fluctuation in that velocity as they go through the stroke. And so what mom- momentum is is the, the mass of the swimmer times the velocity that they're traveling at. So we know mass is constant. So, the changes in momentum that we see are all due to the velocity. And that gets really, becomes really inefficient if that velocity change keeps going up and down dramatically. You want to try to keep it as even as possible. So, that's where you look at, see how all the forces are being generated. You want them from the beginning of the stroke to the end as much as possible. Um, that's where you'll see people who have some of the common technique flaws may only get a propulsive force just right in the middle of the pull. So in that situation, they've got a lot bigger time where their velocity is going to be slowing down and then they've got to accelerate to get the speed, their average speed back up again. So we really want to try to keep that momentum as even as possible. And just everything nice and smooth, just to um, make the effort go as long as we can.
1: Mm, got it. Yeah. So that's like uh, you can imagine, like a, driving a car and trying to be fuel efficient. It's the same. You, you want it to be uh, to be a constant speed and not uh, accelerating and decelerating. So yeah, precisely. Uh, yeah. And and finally, before talking about. Uh, the technique, actual technique aspects of this uh, drag obviously interacts with these biomechanical um, things that we've been talking about. So what, uh, how is drag uh, generated in swimming and, uh, and, and how does it work really?
0: Yep. Well, the, the drag, so basically what we're looking at is any force that stops you from moving forward or tries to stop you from moving forward. So what we tend to see in swimming, um, in like there's a whole bunch, if you go into the real physics of it, there's a bunch of different types of drag. But when we look at swimming from a practical point of view, we really are only looking at three types. So you've got one, which we call friction drag. So that's just the simple resistance of water rubbing up against your body or the suit or whatever. Um, and that just causes a bit of friction. So that tends to slow you down. Then we've got um, what's called form drag, which the easiest way to think of that is if you have somebody, if you're, you're in the water looking head on at somebody swimming towards you and you took a photo of them, some from dead straight ahead, and then kind of drew an outline around every bit of their body that you can see. And then you work out, okay, what's the area of that that I, of, in that picture? And then um, how fast are they going? And you can work out what's the... Um, amount of drag is the f- amount of form drag so it's just that head-on frontal resistance that you get from the water
1: yeah it's like and the f- then we've got fr- the frontal area that we're f- listeners will be familiar right. with from from cycling Correct. yeah from cycling
0: yeah, exactly you want to try to get that frontal area down as small as you can um, and then we've got what's called wave drag so that's gets a little bit more complicated but essentially what it is is when you generate a wave in the water that actually comes from you lifting a mass of water up and then it falls down and then just sets up that familiar wave pattern and the reason that's considered a drag force is that you actually have to use energy from your movements to lift that water so that's what that's energy then that you cannot use to generate propulsion so you dissipate that off into generating a wave so that's why it's Considered to be a drag, and that actually can be at least as much as that um, frontal area, the form drag. Um, and in some cases, we've seen like about almost up to about sixty percent of the total drag can come from waves. So that's where you want to be nice and clean in the water, not you know smacking your arms up and down, you know porpoising those kinds of motions that you can sometimes see in less efficient swimmers.
1: Mm. and and for the form drag do you advocate uh, a large-ish body rotation to minimize the frontal area or or how can we work on minimizing the form
0: drag um the the biggest thing is really is going to be how high you can keep your legs and hips um so that you can keep that like the frontal area even when you rotate um i'm Personally, I like a, a bit of, of rotation, probably about, uh, 30 to 40 degrees of rotation to each side. Um, so a reasonable amount. And the re- one of the reasons for that is that you actually put the arm into a stronger position when you're pulling, that's a, a big thing. And then it also gives, um, a better sculling motion through the finish of the stroke and allows a better exit of the hand through the back of the stroke. Um, so it's, it's not going to change form drag a great deal. Um, having that extra bit of roll, you do get, you know, the opposite shoulder up out of the water. So you'll get a slight reduction, um, but it's really, it's a pretty fine line. I think you the mechanical advantages that you get from getting that rotation, I think, outweigh any possible very slight reduction in form drag that you may see.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. I I was unconsciously already assuming with a constant body position but uh, but of course you're right that mm. that's where the the big big change can come from and uh, that's mm. something that we we will get into in the technique uh, troubleshooting so but let's start with the actual stroke before going into that uh, so okay. yeah, you mentioned a few things already but but how do you what do you think a good stroke should look like for swimmers and triathletes and or if there is there a difference between swimmers and triathletes
0: Um, Yeah, I think there is actually. There's a few things. Probably the biggest, most common thing that you see is that in general, swimmers do tend to be a lot more flexible, especially in the shoulders. Um, So when you start looking at a lot of the swimming, you know, coaching tips and things like that, you, you get into starting to talk about issues like they'll call, you know, early vertical forearm or, you know, real high elbow Catches and things like that, and those are important, but they're act- they're also actually quite difficult positions to get into and and use them effectively. So uh, when you start looking at a triathlon population where that flexibility really isn't there, um, we, you can see people actually going trying to do these quite elite swimming motions that they're really just not built for. So we really try to modulate that a bit. So what I tend to want to see is that with a triathlete so the easiest way to picture it is if you have your arm kind of uh, imagine it's enter the water and you're stretching out in front and you're just going to about to catch the water if you draw a line from the wrist to the shoulder i'd want to see your elbow just above that line and what we often will see with a triathlete is that that elbow ends up being below the line and so if you kind of do that holding your arm out in space and you drop your elbow and then start to kind of move your arm like you're going to do a swimming stroke you'll see the hand tends to push down on the water so that's actually not doing anything in terms of propulsion if anything it's you know raising the front of your body which ends up you know, creating more wave drag as well as increasing the frontal area. So your form drag is going to go up as well. And then you're not going to actually get into a propulsive part of the stroke until further back in um, towards the middle. Whereas if you can keep that elbow above that line, that imaginary line, you'll see that the hand tends to want to start to pull backwards on the water a bit more. So that's really what we're looking for. Um, it is, it's very rare that I would see A triathlete that can get into a a really enormous um really big high elbow with where the elbows significantly above that line um which we do see in more of the elite swimmers so i think that's probably the big one um between the two and then also um looking at the use of the kick i don't know if you want to do that now or we can talk about that a little bit later
1: we can Um, we can keep uh, keep talking about about the stroke now so so now that we we know that we need to to keep that elbow higher than the line between the shoulder and and the wrist to get into a propulsive phase early enough even if it's not a a big vertical forearm what what are the Mm. other things that are important in in terms of the the stroke itself
0: yeah, the other thing you I'd like to look for is that you do have, you know, the, what's termed an, an S-pattern pull. And the, the trick with that is that that's also another very common coaching tip that you need to, you know, your hand enters and you start, you pull out a little bit and then you come back in towards the midline of your body and then back out again. And that is true, but what you can often see, especially in um, – Athletes that don't have a lot of body roll, they'll tend to exaggerate that. So they'll get that S curve is really big. So there's ends up being a lot of lateral movement, which can make you snake around in the water, which is obviously not the most effective way to swim. Um, so that's where some of the body roll stuff we were talking about before can actually come into play. So if you do have a, a good amount of body roll um, – what you'll tend to find is that if you almost intend to pull pretty much straight back, when you have that body roll, that will just naturally create that S-shaped pattern and in a not too exaggerated fashion. So it'll be much more controlled. So if you look at it you know, from the swimmer's point of view or the triathlete's point of view, they would perceive the pole to actually look pretty straight. But if you looked at it from the outside, you'd actually see that there is more of that S-shaped pattern to it. And that's got some advantages in terms of um, getting clean water under the hand. So it just it makes the mechanics of the pole a little bit more effective. Um, the other thing that we want to look for is the, the symmetry of the stroke. And that's another real big common problem, not only in triathletes, but in um, competitive swimmers as well, where you want to have the sweep of the stroke on both sides should be basically the same. So what I mean by that is that the, the out sweep at the front of the catch is going to be just outside of the shoulder. The in maximum part of the in sweep will be hitting right kind of down the midline, center midline of the body and then the outsweep back past the hip. The issue that we'll see, especially with triathletes, because they're, you know, in general swimming in open water with limited um, visual references, if you have an imbalance in those movement patterns, what you'll often end up seeing is that people will start to drift off to one side or the other. So you may have an athlete who, you know, continually goes left, in every course that they swim. So they have to end up spending a lot more time doing navigation or relying more heavily on other athletes to kind of keep them in line. And then you end up obviously wasting a whole lot of energy if you're doing that because you're not, you know, things aren't moving straight. So you're having to do all these corrections. So if we can keep that symmetry in the stroke, and so it doesn't have to be necessarily you know that perfect s shape that i just was talking about all that that's the ideal we'd be looking for sometimes for you know various flexibility or whatever reasons that's really just not possible so fundamentally we want it kind of right around those positions but that balance between the um, the two sides is really the most critical thing Mm,
1: interesting and uh yeah as, as you say that's uh, i don't know if it's right or wrong but uh, what i tend to do is uh, i almost never talk about the s-pull uh, but I, I just talk yeah. about as you say perceiving the stroke to go mm. back towards the feet but then uh, assuming that you have that body roll uh, adequately then then you will yep. form that s-pull when you look at it from uh, the yeah. perspective of the water i guess yeah exactly yeah. What about the, the last part of, uh, of the stroke? Uh, do, you, uh, do you advocate finishing completely? I think that's probably what most do, but I, I know of mm. some coaches that advocate an earlier exit.
0: Yeah, because I, I think you want to be able to – the ideal um, pattern of the pull is that once your hand – once you start that pull backward – you should be accelerating the hand all the way past to the, the fin- to the finish of the stroke. So where I normally would say the stroke finishes is if you're wearing just a, a normal pair of Speedos, that your thumb would hit kind of just below that hip cutout, the hole at the top of the leg. So it just kind of brushes at the top of the thigh. Um, I think what ends up happening is that sometimes what can happen is if you decide you're going to finish the stroke early because there's a big change in direction that has to happen. In order for that change of direction to occur, you actually have to slow the arm down. So what a lot of people will do when they are trying to pull out too early is they actually decrease the amount of force that they can actually generate because they're having to slow the hand down to get that change in direction. So you're always going to have it. You know, There's no way to get around it. The arm's got to get, get back through the recovery. But if you can carry on that acceleration and press through, you don't want to go you know, until your elbow's dead straight because then you got nowhere to go and your arm's going to stop, hand's going to stop anyhow. Um, but if you kind of finish an exit just before your arm hits that full extension, that, that tends to be the ideal.
1: Do you have any tips for uh, swimmers who probably a lot of other athletes probably aren't aware of this acceleration and accelerating through the stroke? Is that something that you should consciously think about, or do you train it somehow? What What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, it, it is. It is something you do have to think about a bit um, until you get used to how it feels. Because if you're used to just kind of um, a con- kind of a constant speed of the hand through the pull motion it will feel quite different so you really do need to get that going because the the whole thing one of the main reasons it's important is that if you have a like a constant speed it's like if you're um, pushing against a you know a little big box on the ground you can exert a lot of force when it's not moving but once it starts to move you can't actually get as much force against it. So the only way you can get that same force back is to start pushing harder and moving it faster. So it's the same basic concept here that once you actually started the catch, in order to maintain that force under the hand, you've actually got to speed it up because the water, you've already started to get moving. So you just can't, if you keep the movement at the same speed, you're not going to get as much force out of it. So you do need to work on getting that acceleration all the way through. Mm.
1: all all right so uh, now let's talk about kicking just uh, briefly as you mentioned earlier what's your take on that for triathletes
0: yep um most triathletes are crap at it um fundamentally that's a, a bit of an issue um and i think a lot of that has to do as i mentioned early on with um, the level of ankle flexibility that they have. And that is really common, you get people that are coming out of running backgrounds or cycling backgrounds in particular, where they actually don't tend to ever get into those really big toe extension kind of positions, tend to be a lot more fixed. So they just have never developed that um, ankle flexibility that allows you to actually push back on the water with the top of the foot, which is really what we're trying to achieve. The way they tend to try to get that is that they'll do really excessive knee bend. And that's just quite inefficient as well because you're, again, increasing drag. You get um, actually quite a small period of time where you're actually getting propulsion. And the other advantage that you have of if you keep the legs long and get um, your propulsion through having that good ankle flexibility, you also get that a bit of lift force. As well as propulsion, which will help keep the, the legs up. What you do see with, and you know, it's quite common, you see it relatively often with triathletes who don't have that flexibility, is if they say they, they are keeping their legs nice and long and straight, but they can't point their toes really, you'll actually see people kicking and moving backwards, which is obviously not all that beneficial. Um, so, for that reason, we play around a little bit with the triathletes. Um, one of the big problems is that ankle flexibility is actually one of the harder joints to get flexible. So in some ways, you're you're almost stuck with what you've got. So in that situation, we'll tend to get um, athletes that don't have good ankle flexibility to try to minimize the kick and just focus on getting um, the legs up. So using what force they can generate, just to keep the legs up so that they can keep in a more streamlined position.
1: Yeah. Um, and and I guess that it's not all that bad, especially if it's a wetsuit swim, then you get that buoyancy to, to get your legs right. up. And and especially for long-distance triathlon, saving your legs a little bit is, mm. is not, not a bad thing when yeah. you only lose potentially a, a small amount of, of a propulsive contribution from the yeah. legs.
0: Exactly. But yeah, I think you you will get into situations where people think that, oh, I've, I've really got to kick hard here. But if they don't have that ankle flexibility, they're really just going to blow themselves up because um, they they're just they not going to get anything really that beneficial out of it. So they've got to learn to not get sucked into that trap and just use the kick for what it can be used for as you know, keeping the legs up. It, it also it does provide some balance and it's a counterbalance to the to the arms same kind of thing that you find in running you know as a leg drives forward um, before um, heel plant you know the opposite arm is driving forward to kind of counteract that torque around the long axis of the body you get exactly the same thing in swimming where the hand as one hand enters and starts to catch you're going to see that opposite leg kicking down at that same point so you get that counteracting um, forces that help keep you nice and strong and streamlined through the core of your body
1: and what about stroke rates if you talk about that next and yep. uh, is there a difference between stroke rates in the pool and in the open water
0: um there tends to be a little bit you'll, you'll tend to see in open water stroke rates do kind of come up a little bit um and a lot of that is due to the increased demands of dealing with swells or tides and having to navigate a bit more and you just need, with that higher rate, you're a bit more flexible in making those adjustments. In um, the pool we will tend to keep, you know, things a bit longer because it's a much more controlled environment. So we can keep the rates down a bit and really focus more on the length. Whereas in the open water, that's not, you know, sometimes you, you can get away with that. And again, it's going to depend on what the characteristics of your particular stroke are. But in general, I would say that stroke rates are going to tend to to start to rise a bit once you get into open water, especially in any kind of chop.
1: And do you advise uh, triathletes and swimmers to to aim for a particular stroke rate and uh, work up or down to to have an an quote-unquote ideal stroke rate for them? Or how does that work?
0: Yeah, it really is. It's, it is kind of an optimization um, process. So ideally, you want to try to get as much stroke length out of your stroke as you can. So for, you want to travel as far as possible for every stroke that you take, but you all, that's kind of comes with a cost to some extent. Um, It's the same kind of thing as if you're, you know, pushing a, a really massive gear on your bike. You know, you can generate a lot of force, you can get a lot of speed going, so. That, but the rate's pretty low. Or you can do that with a, a smaller gear and have a higher um, pedaling frequency and get the same velocity and you actually don't use up quite as much energy. So it is kind of finding that balance point for your your physiology, your technique, where that rate that you're using – gives you an kind of an optimized length. So it's not going to give you the longest length that you can possibly generate, but it's going to feel, find that point where there's a, a good balance between the two.
1: And how does that work in, in practice for an athlete if they want to find that, that point? Is it really a case of having, uh, having a coach uh, standing on deck and, and looking at mm-hmm. them and saying, now, now you're at the, the sweet spot of stroke length and stroke yeah. rate? Or is there any other way, any protocols that, that you use or, or um, yeah, you
0: can, you can do it um, by doing stroke counts at different paces in the, in the pool so you can play around and especially if you start combining that if you have a heart rate measurement as well then you can start looking at what's okay what's that physiological cost so you know you can do say a, you know a 40 second 50 meter swim and you're going to take 30 strokes and you've got a you know a 120 heart rate or something and if you go a 40 second swim but you use 20 strokes And But all of a sudden, your heart rate's jumped up to 160 because you're having to work a lot harder through each of those pulls. And so you just kind of can play around with different settings and see what actually suits. So as soon as you start to see, what you'll tend to see is there'll be a a point that you'll hit where you'll get a big drop-off or a a big spike in heart rate. Um, So you'll get to a point where that rate and stroke count um you just can't you can't do it anymore and you or you get really tired. So finding those kind of break points, um is probably the easiest way to do it. I probably made that sound a little bit harder than it really is. Um but fundamentally I know, it,
1: uh, I know of a good article that we can link to in the show notes on the Swim Smooth website that describes this process. Oh, okay. They they don't use heart cool. rate, they use RPE but but the principles the
0: same. Yep, cool.
1: So uh, let's talk, uh, talk briefly again about the most common problems that you see for triathletes in their technique and, and mechanics. I think we already mentioned that uh, body position is one of them. So maybe we, we'll start there. And, and how, how can you correct that and, and work on improving it?
0: Yep. Um, well, for one, it is um, some of its head position. You can start with that. So if you tend to swim with your head too high, so ideally like if you're in a pool environment where you've got nice references on the bottom and everything like that you'd want the water level to kind of hit it just above just above your forehead closer to the top of your head. Um obviously when you are start swimming in open water and you've got to do navigation strokes and things like that you're going to tend to lift the head a little bit higher so that you can just kind of do little peaks. But you do have you don't want to be swimming as little as possible, at least with your head much higher than with the water, kind of just above your goggles. Um, and the reason for that is you'll tend to drop the, the lower body down. So we try to limit that head position, and then also using the, the vertical force that you can get from your kick um, can ha- also. And it doesn't have to be. You can do it with a two-beat, you know, standard, just kind of a cruising kick will provide enough of that lift if you if it's everything's kind of timed properly. So maintaining that body position is really going to be the the biggest one. Um, Once we go from the body position, then it's that um, that high elbow or the elbow above the line up in the catch. That's probably the the second biggest one that we'll see. And that you know, a lot of that is some visualization kind of stuff that you you know. There's the old adages of. once you've entered in the water, you imagine you're kind of reaching over the top of a barrel under your arm. That's a, a good visualization to have. Or, you know, I used to have one that was you're trying to reach down a drain pipe, those kinds of things, um, just to help kind of get you into that position as much as you can. There are some um, training aids that you can use that will help with that a little bit. Um, there's one from Finnis... I just can't remember the name of it. Um, it looks like a figure eight.
1: It's something like the Fulcrum Forearm something. Fulcrum,
0: yeah. Forearm yeah. Fulcrum, that's it. That's it. Um, and what that'll do is it actually, because I should have probably said this too, one thing you'll see, again, quite often with triathletes when they're trying to work on that high elbow catch is they think they're doing it, but what they're actually doing is just flexing at the wrist. So they're just purely relying on the hand to gen- generate propulsion, which is a you're really cheating yourself because that forearm can generate quite a bit. But what that ful- fulcrum will do, or something similar, um, is it just keeps that wrist straight and kind of forces you to keep that elbow nice and high up at the catch.
1: Yeah, um, uh, I like swimming with tennis balls for that for testing how how well hmm. with your forearms uh, as well. Having yeah, exactly. holding tennis balls in your hands. Exactly. Yeah,
0: swimming with fists or tennis balls, or you know, you can do all. There's all kinds of variations you can do with those, and uh, even swimming a bit of dog paddle mm, is another yeah. kind of a good one as well.
1: So, and and generally speaking, are you a fan of uh, of training technique by swimming and doing these sorts of visualizations? But mm-hmm. or or do you propose uh, doing a lot of drill work? Where do you stand on that spectrum?
0: Uh, yeah, I think drill work is, is really important. Um, it is, it's a little bit, it can be a little bit of a trap because people will start to do drills and then, you know, there's a bit of it that a very small portion that may relate to what they're actually doing when they swim. Um, so I wouldn't do a massive amount of drills because you can also get into some pretty bad habits. Um, that's one thing, especially with, um, with paddles. That's a a real common one that one, the first thing I'll tell any athlete is like most paddles come with a loop around the fingers and another one around the wrist. The first thing I'll tell any athlete is take the strap off of the wrist, never use it Um, because that can introduce some really bad, you get some lazy habits because the paddle doesn't leave your hand. If you do something wrong, if you take that wrist off, then you actually, it forces you to use a better propulsive technique. So, it's really how you're going to use these things and just make sure that the, the motions you're doing are as, going to resemble as much as possible the bit of the stroke that you're trying to work on. So, if it is, if you're doing, you know, say, dog paddle or swimming with tennis balls or whatever, just remember that the focus of this is to try to get that elbow and focusing on using the forearm as much as you can and really just make sure you're doing that and try not to and try to keep everything else as normal as possible and not get into really goofy big swingy mo- motions that are going to develop into those bad habits
1: mm. is there anything else uh, except for the body position and uh, working on on that uh catch face and and having that elbow yep. reasonably high that we need to talk about as the biggest mistakes obviously we don't need to go yeah. into small things that make small differences we want yeah, to keep yeah. it the, yeah. the big points
0: yeah I I, th- I think the other probably the other really big one that i do focus a lot on is that um side to side imbalancing you know you if you're going to be navigating a lot you're going to be adding a lot of extra distance onto your swim which is just going to kill you so Um, A good little test for that that I often will almost do first thing is I'll get athletes to get into the pool, push off, take a few strokes, and then close their eyes and keep swimming. And because then once they close their eyes, they lose all those visual references, you'll get the natural behavior of the stroke. So you'll see, and it's very common for athletes to go two strokes and they'll hang an arm over a lane line. And that's a, a really good quick and dirty way to work out or to at least narrow down your focus on what you need to be looking at and most often what it'll be. So if you tend to have a, an athlete who veers off to the right, once you kind of go back and look at what they're doing in the water, you'll see that the, the left arm tends to pull really wide. There's some, you know, there are exceptions to that. There's other stuff that can happen, but the major- great majority of the time, that's going to be the situation. So it really can help you focus down and see um, where in the stroke that side to side motion is happening. And it could actually be during breathing as well. So that's another big thing to watch for is that, you know, it's, they may be fine when they're not breathing, but as soon as they turn their head, then the, that pulling arm will slide way out and make this big turning motion onto their swim
1: good yeah that's a really good good tip and uh something that uh anybody who has a swim workout today maybe you try that during Mm -hmm. warm-up see see how you go yeah exactly
0: right it gets entertaining for people watching too totally
1: (laughs) (laughs) one final question it's uh well a bit related to this but i'm curious if you're aware of and uh, what your opinion is on things like there is this uh, device called the trend TrainSense train sense smart pedal and i'm sure mm. there may be other yep. ones that measure the stroke trajectory mm-hmm. and and power and it's like a thing that you just yep. strap on your finger basically in and do you yep. have you used it uh, do you know of it what do you think about it
0: I know, I know of it. Yeah. I have, um, I haven't actually used one, so I can't really speak too much on how effective they really are. That area of technology has been just going absolutely crazy lately. Um, using those inertial sensors and things to get the, um, the orientation of the hand, um, that I suppose that's, that kind of raises one issue in that getting orientation of the hand from those sensors can be a little bit touchy. Um, so I think that would probably be my only question is I'd, I'd want to do, you know, have a bit of a play with them to see how well they actually do replicate the, the hand paths. The stuff I've seen, you know, I've, I've looked on their website in the past. You know, I came across them you know, several months ago, I think at least, the middle of last year probably. Um, and it does, it does look really interesting. It's a big improvement. There's been some similar systems that just kind of look at pressure under the hand. And I've never really liked those because you can't tell what direction the pressure's being applied. So they could, and you could have an athlete with horrendous technique, but it looks like if you just look at those pressure curves, like they're doing fine. But, you know, all of that force could be just going vertically and not moving them forward through the water. So having that orientation is a really big thing um bonus without having to do it you know through the old-fashioned digi- manual digitizing and things like that that you'd have to do traditionally to get that kind of information
1: yeah i actually used it once on a coaching course on on myself i was a guinea pig for it so and got a report yeah. with those trajectories so it was really interesting but yeah. Uh, mm. uh yeah i would need to to do like Use it with with more purpose to to really have a big opinion on it. But uh, with the, the work that you do and and the research, I was curious to hear what you uh, what you thought about it.
0: Yeah, we used to, you know, I've, in the time back and you know the, this goes back far too long, longer than I care to mention. But um, back in the late eighties, early nineties, um, when I was working with U.S. swimming, we did that kind of stuff all the time. But it wasn't with an actual sensor. We'd collect a lot of three-dimensional video and then do calculations on those the positions of the hand that we determined on the computer. Um, so that kind of information can be hugely useful. You can get a, a really good idea of how effective athletes are being. Um, but, yeah, as I say, I, I just want to have a bit of a, a play with one and um, compare it against some other measures just to see how, how reliable and accurate it really is.
1: Yep. Yeah. All right, let's uh, finish up with the rapid-fire questions. And uh, in just one sentence or less, answer these. The first one being, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or swimming?
0: Um, I'm probably pretty old school on this, so I'm going to say my favorite book would be um, The Science of Swimming by James Councilman. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Um. As a swimmer, when I was swimming, I would have said probably my kickboard.
1: And what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your career?
0: Um, In my swimming career, I wish I knew as much about technique as I do now, because I would have probably saved myself a lot of pain in my shoulders. And professionally, I should have finished my PhD a lot faster than I did.
1: So that's uh, about it for today's interview. Thank you so much, Dave. It was uh, really great having you on and uh, and really interesting perspective from somebody who really knows the ins and outs from both the practical and and the research side of things of of swimming mechanics. So thank you so much.
0: My, My pleasure.
1: I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Dave. My key takeaways from the interview were first that the key things to focus on, and this is nothing new really, but it's uh, good to repeat it and reinforce it, working on body position and keeping the elbow up, not necessarily trying to have uh, the world's greatest early vertical forearm, because that's, uh, as they said, probably not possible with our mobility but making sure that it doesn't drop below uh, your hand, that is between your hand and your shoulder, as we talked about, and also making sure that your stroke is symmetric. So the ways that you would work on this, as uh, Dave talked about, was for body position, focus on head positioning, and maybe trying to drop it a bit in the water if you hold it too high, and to some extent, work on using your kick to keep the legs up. For the symmetry side, try to swim with your eyes closed and see what happens. Do you sway to one side or the other? Then maybe your stroke is too wide on one side and you need to make it more symmetrical that way. The second takeaway is that if there's nothing terribly wrong with your body position and balance in the water, then it might make sense to focus more on the actual propulsion side of things than actually focusing on body position and improving that further. And that's something that... uh, Goes against what you sometimes see, which uh, which is the reason that I bring it up here. That uh, this might be something that you want to try if you have worked a lot on body position and uh, and you haven't seen results. Obviously, Dave has seen results with working on the propulsion. So definitely believe that there's uh, there there's a lot to this approach. So maybe give that a try if uh, that's something that you think would work for you. And finally, remember to accelerate throughout your stroke. This is something that hasn't come up often either, and uh, so that's why I bring it up here, because I think it's really important, but it's not one of the most common points made. Uh, I only remember it being talked about once, and that was in my interview with Rob Sleemaker from uh, Vasa, CEO of the company making the Vasa Trainer. I think it's worth pointing out here, as I said, to make sure that you have that acceleration from the beginning through the end of your stroke, and not going at a single speed. As usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thatdraftlonshow.com. If you have questions or comments, leave them on that show notes page and uh, I'll answer right there. If you enjoy the podcast, it would really mean the world to me if you could rate and review it on iTunes. This helps it go up in the iTunes rankings, which ultimately helps keep the podcast coming out at this rate with sponsors. And also it helps get great guests to the show when they see that the podcast is is a top-ranked triathlon show. So there's room to grow there, so please, please help out with that. Massive shout-out to somebody who did post a review on iTunes, and that was Jordan in the United States. He writes in the best triathlon show, five stars. This is a great podcast that is always full of good info. What I appreciate most about your podcast is that you have a lot of professional guest speakers on this show. And when you don't have these guests, you don't make statements without backing them up with evidence. In the few circumstances where you do put in personal opinions, you specifically state it. In other words, your podcast is not simply you talking about your own opinions and no research to back up your preferences in training. Thank you for taking time to interview the wide variety of guests you have. The questions you ask are thoughtful ones. Big big thank you Jordan. I really appreciate it and uh, As I said, if you want to help out a little bit, then you posting a rating and review really helps out a ton. So please, please do that if you have uh, even just a minute or two to spare. That really helps. Thank you to Ventum for sponsoring this episode. You can check out all of their bikes on VentumRacing.com from the flagship Ventum 1 to the new Ventum C Mechanical. They are all designed to have radical uh, aerodynamic designs with, without down tubes and seat stays. The water bottle is integrated to make it a speed machine. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go back to episode 115 where I interview Ventum co-founder Jimmy Sears on bike maintenance in general. Whether you have a Ventum or not, this is worth listening to. And thank you to Precision Hydration. Remember that you can take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com. This will give you a personalized hydration strategy for your next race. And you can use the discount code thattriathlonshow, all one word, to get your first box of Precision Hydration product for free. Check out their blog under the hydration advice tab as well because they have a lot of information there that you can use, whether you use their products or not this is helpful for anybody who is interested in performing well in training and racing thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon